So I told my wife and family, I said, hey kids, <laughs> we're really, really in debt. And starting January 1st, we're gonna start giving our way out of debt. What, what, that what does that mean? They looked at me funny. And I said, <laughs> we're going to start giving generously as if we're making half a million dollars. We're going to pretend. And we're going to start giving really generously. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties and help investors like yourself join me on all my deals so they can get double digit returns without the need to find, negotiate, close and manage the properties. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes, Google Play or at any of those other platforms that are out there that you're listening to right now. These reviews mean the world to me and my team. You can always go to my website, www.elliepearlman.com to read the show's notes as well. And on today's show, I'm chatting with Paul Moore. He is the author of The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing, and the co-host of the podcast, How to Lose Money. Paul completed 85 real estate investments and exits, appeared on HGTV special real estate episode, rehabbed and managed dozens of rental properties, and started a real estate marketing firm. He has an engineering degree and an MBA from Ohio State. Paul's story is phenomenal, and he will share with us how and why he is using real estate profits to fight human trafficking, and how he went from $2 million in the bank to $2.5 million in debt and bounced back from there and became debt-free in 13 months only. That sounds like an amazing story, and I can't wait to hear it. Hey, Paul, how are you doing today? Hey, Ellie, it's great to be on. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many questions I want to ask you, but I guess we'll, we'll start with the beginning. Can you share with me and my listeners, where are you 20 years ago? What are you doing? All right. So when I went to Ford Motor Company, I got an engineering degree and then that was my first mistake, I think. And then I got an MBA and I went into Ford Motor Company in their headquarters in Detroit. And it was an awesome time. I love Ford. I still drive a Ford. But I, I found myself really having a desire to be an entrepreneur. And I started doing, you know, stuff in the evenings. I talked about with my friends about starting an oil chain shop near Detroit and all this other stuff. And we eventually started a, an HR outsourcing, a human resource outsourcing company. And I was fortunate enough to be finalist for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year a few years during this five-year run. And we sold it to a publicly traded company for about $3 million in 20 years ago. I found myself with having way more cash and time on my hands than I had common sense. 
And, you know, Ellie, I did not know the difference between investing and speculating. I thought I did, but I didn't. You know, investing is when your principal is safe and you have a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you have a chance to make a return. And so I liked at that point in my life to call myself an investor. And I invested in some really dumb things and lost a lot of money. And that's partly propelled me to do my podcast now, my wealth building podcast, How to Lose Money. But I did invest in some great things along the way and including real estate, which I did for the next decade that led up to the Great Recession. So how, how did you lose money? What were your, some of the mistakes that you've done in the past? So one was I invested with this guy who had this foreign exchange trading program. And I think he said he was making 3% a month and he gave 2% to his investors and he kept 1%. That guy is serving 156 year term in federal prison. And oh. he still won't tell me or the other 2000 investors where he hid the $18 million. And so unbelievable. it's unbelievable. So that was, you know, something that I did. It looked really like a good idea at the time. You know, every bad decision, every mess we're all in, Ellie, started out with what seemed like a great idea. But that's a story for another day. Uh, <laughs> I also helped start a wireless internet company. And again, it looked like we were going to be making millions within a year. And it just never really never really was profitable and it dragged on for like six years. I threw money down the bottom of a hole in the ground trying to drill for oil and gas. And that was a sure thing. And of course, didn't make money on that as well. Still hoping someday they're going to work that out. But it's been about a decade. I don't think they're going to. So at any rate, those were some of the things I made mistakes in over the years and some real estate things as well. Do you care to share with us? Because I'm really interested about part that, that is related to real estate. Well, I mean, I'll tell you this, we flipped a lot of houses and we, I thought, well, if, if flipping houses makes sense, building them makes even more. And so, mm. but a guy who doesn't know how to put a doorknob on his house probably shouldn't be a builder. <laughs> and I won't mention any names, but at any rate, I managed this building company and we, we started building houses and actually we made money on quite a few modular homes. And then I did a stick built house. Some of the contractors took advantage of us. Somehow one of them taught me into buying a bulldozer for them. And somebody else did all the drywall wrong and the buyer moved into the house and didn't know the drywall was wrong, but somebody else who went in there to touch up something pointed it out to me and he brought me over there and showed me with some bright lights and we told the buyer, we said, I'm sorry, we, you know, we're going to ask you to, we're going to cover all your stuff up and we're going to go back and re-sand and repaint the entire house. And that's just a moral, ethical decision we made. And I always am glad I did that. But needless to say, we should have made about $80,000 profit on that. And Ellie, we lost about 40000 on that. So, mm. but that kind of leads me up to the Great Recession where we had about a dozen high-end waterfront lots. We were flipping waterfront lots and making a hundred to $120,000 profit per lot at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia. And we were holding a lot of those in 2007 when the market went south. And so that's kind of, that's how I ended up two and a half million dollars in debt. So that was from different investment in different projects and different companies, or were you only doing real estate at that point? 
at that point, it was all real estate at that mm -hmm. moment in time. Now, some of that, you know, that led up to that was probably losses and some of these other things. But I had a vacation home. I had my home. I had all these waterfront lots. And, you know, there was a, I, I think it was a Fortune magazine headline that said, the real estate bubble is about to burst. And I haven't been able to find that magazine, but I think it was 2005 or six. And, you know, I just didn't want to believe it, or I somehow wanted to believe I was immune to it. And I think, Ellie, that's one of the reasons that our investors really need to think hard about investing with people who have been through other downturns, you know? I, I think that's really important because, you know, there's a famous book out, I think it's called, It's Different This Time. Famous last words. And, you know, people say that going into every recession. Yeah, I can definitely see uh, how that might apply to where we are right now. Hopefully not. But, you know, no, nobody knows. And there is a feeling out there that we're kind of immune to it, maybe because the last recession was so unbelievably a lot worse than anyone had anticipated. But yeah, um, I understand. So you went through different kind of types of through different types of investments, you starting to zero in on real estate, you're doing multiple projects. And and then the recession, you know, came was it 2007, 2008. And you're losing some or all of your investments and you wake up one morning and maybe it didn't happen, you know, in the way that I describe it, but you wake up one morning, you're logging in, you're looking into your bank account and you see that you're, that you're basically two and a half million dollars in debt. So probably a very simplistic way of, of describing what happened, but I'm interested in understanding what were your thoughts when all of a sudden you're in that place where you are in a huge debt after you were very successful doing running multiple projects. Right. So for one thing, I don't think I thought of this as clearly as I do now a decade later, but honestly, Ellie, I was glad to be investing in real estate because unlike, you know, the wireless internet business or throwing money to the bottom mm -hmm. of an oil well, the money is, is recoverable. In other words, every bit of the debt I didn't have credit card debt that, that I remember, but anything significant, but all the debt was attached to assets. Mm -hmm. and that's one thing I love about real estate. I know people in tech, in IT and, you know, tech, the tech world might make a higher percentage return. Sometimes these angel investors making thousands of percent, but when they lose, they usually lose it all. And with this real estate, it had a value. And one of the things that happened to me late in 2007 was uh, my partner came to me who had a lot of these waterfront lots with me, including one really expensive lot. And he said, I can't do this anymore. I can't make these, I can't make half the payment on all this anymore. We're not making any money. And so starting January 1st, 2008, I'm out. And so that's when I realized, wow, that's my, my debt just went up to the full two and a half million. None of it was shared mm -hmm. anymore. So that was a, a tough time for sure. And that's where our kind of our amazing story begins, if you will. Did, were you married at that point? Yeah, I was married and we had three great kids and one other kid too. No, I'm just kidding. I said that for my <laughs> daughter's sake. I always say that too. We have, we have four <laughs> kids and we still do. We have, my kids are 25. 22, 17, and 13 now. So my youngest was three. Did you have any conversation with your wife back then to tell her what just happened, that you're basically in a lot of debt right now? 
Yeah, my goal at the time, our marriage wasn't too great. And actually, it was strained, honestly, already from a whole bunch of other relational factors and some things that had happened to her in her childhood, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about that later. But my goal with her was to hide, was to keep her calm and to not throw extra stress into her life. So I always acted like everything was fine. If she knew we were really, really in debt, of course, but I didn't tell her how bad it really was at the time. I finally did, but for most of that year or two that it was just coming on, I didn't really say much to her. Mm -hmm. Got it. So you, you basically protected her from the unnecessary stress and you decided to take care of it yourself. So how was that resolved now that, that you were in a huge debt? So I was sitting in a chair much like this one, one morning. It was a Sunday morning and I actually have a practice of meditating every morning and I actually mm -hmm. started thinking, this crazy idea came to me, what would George Mueller do? WWGMD. And that doesn't mean what would grandma do? And George Mueller, if you're not aware, is a guy who lived through almost the whole 19th century, lived through the 1800s. And he was a hellion. He was from Germany. And he actually straightened his life out and he moved to England and he became a pastor. And he said, you know, I wanted to prove to the world that you don't have to have huge fundraising campaigns and you don't have to work 16 or 18 hour days to make a living. He and his wife had a heart for orphans, so they decided to start an orphanage. And in the course of many, many decades, they actually raised what I believe is about 200 million in today's dollars. I actually think it could be quite a bit more than that. And they never asked anybody for a penny. They never told anybody what their needs were. They actually housed up to a total, total, total of 10,000 orphans during that time. And they did it without any visible means of support. And he was a, he actually hated debt. And he wrote about how much he hated debt. And I thought, well, what would, you, well, he wouldn't be in debt in the first place. So I'm already in trouble. But he was also very generous. And I thought, well, what if I became as generous as George Mueller? What would that look like? So I told my wife and family, I said, hey, kids. <laughs> We're really, really in debt. And starting January 1st, we're going to start giving our way out of debt. What, How will that what work? What does that mean? They looked at me funny. And <laughs> I said, we're going to start giving generously as if we're making half a million dollars. We're going to pretend. And we're going to start giving really generously. And we're going to see what happens. And I really, truly believe in the law of sowing and reaping. Some people in other parts of the world call it karma. And that's fine, but I, I really believe that that works. And so I really believe that if we started giving generously, it would really come back. And so I actually talked to a few of my friends who sat down at a, a Hardy's restaurant. It's Carl's Jr. on your part of the world. And they said, you, you've got to face the facts, pal. You've got to declare bankruptcy. I said, nope. I said, that could come to that. But I said, right now, we're going to start giving generously and see what happens. So we started giving a fixed amount every week. And you know, Ellie, four weeks into that, I was, I met a guy at a Subway restaurant. I knew who he was. I knew him already a little. He was a real estate developer. I told him my plight. And I told him about this five acre piece of land that I had bought to subdivide into five one acre waterfront lots. And he said, well, you ought to try this. And he referenced a certain law, kind of obscure law on the books. And I said, yeah, I know all about that law. And I already studied it. It won't work for me. He said, well, you may want to think of it differently, you know. 
all of a sudden it was like this amazing light bulb went off. And this was four weeks into this giving campaign, I guess you could say in late January, 2008. And like all of a sudden I had this real clarity on how I could actually make the law work for me instead of against me. And so two days later, I sat down with the planning and zoning commission administrator and my surveyor. And I laid out this crazy, crazy plan for subdividing these waterfront lots. And she looks up at me over her glasses and she said, I've been working in this job for, I think it was decades, and no one has ever come up with such a outlandish idea. And she said, you're absolutely right. We can, the law would not prohibit you from doing this. And in fact, if you bring me this plan officially, I'll approve it, I'll have to. And so we got the plan approved. And I will fast forward 13 months later, we had sold all those lots right in the very middle of the worst time of the recession in September of 2008. And 13 months later, we were completely debt free. Wow, that's amazing. I'm just thinking about that moment, those two moments, the first one that you actually decide, you know what, I'm in huge debt, I'm going to act exactly the opposite of how I you know, usually or not usually, but how average Joe or anyone else, you know, out there would behave, which is downsizing or trying to think, you know, how we should pivot away from real estate and do something else or maybe sell it and, and get rid of the debt. And how thinking differently at that point, as you said, maybe it's karma or maybe something in your energy, something changed there that you met this developer in randomly. And then that that actually opened up the door to your solution. Yeah. Which is, which is amazing. I mean, I, I actually don't know anyone who went into debt and said, you know what, I'm going to start giving away as if I'm, I'm rich, as if I'm wealthy. And there's something I think that the, the subconscious, I'm, I'm a huge believer in the, the subconscious mind and the power of the subconscious mind. And when you behave like this, amazing things happen. I think your story is pretty amazing. So 13 months later, you're able to use the law to your advantage in a very creative way. You sell the land and you cover all the debt. Right. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did it happen exactly? Well, if we had half an hour, I could probably tell you in detail, <laughs> but I'll tell you the quick summary. There's a law on many books in many rural areas, which were in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia at Smith Mountain Lake. And uh, there's a law in the books called the family exemption. And it was for somebody with, let's say, a hundred acre farm that wanted to carve out five acres for, let's say, a child or a one acre for their, you know, their parents or in-laws to place mm -hmm. another home on, on a piece of land that wouldn't otherwise be subdividable. And let's say they would allow them to, you know, put a gravel road down to their one acre little plot uh, back, you know, behind the house or whatever. And so you see this on a lot of farms. Well, the law said that when you subdivide off a piece of land like that, you have what's called the parent tract. And then the I can't remember what the other piece is called, but only the piece that's divided off, that piece cannot be sold for three or four years, okay? So my idea was using this law to say, okay, we'll divide it and somehow give a piece of, of, of the land, take the five acres, we give away the four acres to somebody, but they couldn't sell it, so I needed to do it quickly. Well, what I realized is it didn't say anything about the parent tract 
as far as it not being sold. So imagine our mm. farm example again. The farmer gives, let's say, five acres away to their child, then they immediately sell the rest of the farm around it. Well, that nobody would ever thought to make a law against that, and there wasn't a law against that. So what we did is we said, okay, somebody buys the five acres for the whole it was 1.3 million, by the way. That was the cost of all five lots combined, by the way. And we had to get a bank to finance that, which was crazy in the middle of the recession, let me tell you. But anyway, they subdivided off four acres and they kept one acre. Actually, they subdivided off the one acre is what I should have said. And they granted that to their wife. And then the wife held it and she had a three, four year exemption on selling it. But the four acres that was subdivided from, if you will, no one said they couldn't sell that and they sold it a day later. The next mm. person bought the four acres, carved off a piece to their wife, and then they sold the three that remained the next day. And then we just did this in succession until all of it was sold. And all that went down, like I said, right when everybody was panicking you know, Lehman Brothers was Lehman Brothers was going bankrupt, et cetera, Bear Stearns, everything was in a in a free fall. That's when we did all this, which makes it even more amazing. Absolutely. Did you think that you would be able to find buyers back then in you know, in the middle of everything collapsing around you? That's another amazing thing. Hardly anybody was buying waterfront lots in those days mm -hmm. because nobody wanted to, you know, put up, buy a lot and spend a year building a house when they were all scared to death that the world was about to end. And I was still able to find four of those five buyers immediately, which is exactly what I needed to get out of debt. And then I found the fifth buyer uh, several months later, and that's when we were completely debt free, I think, in the spring of 2009. And at that point, did you go back to your wife and say, you know what, dear wife, you knew that we were in debt, but actually this is how bad it was. Did you wait until, until you were debt free to give uh, her no, all the details? I, I think when I sat her and the family down in December of 2007, I told them how bad it was, but I tried mm -hmm. not to panic. I tried to act like everything was cool. And, and the crazy thing about it, Ellie, is I really wasn't panicking. I wasn't sure how it would turn out but I wasn't really panicking for some reason. And it's pretty amazing to me that I wasn't. So Paul, how are you able to do that? How are you able to stay calm when everything around you is collapsing and all of a sudden you're in huge debt? I just think it's a matter of, you know, my faith. I really believe that somehow or another, this would turn out for good. I believed that and I still believe it today. So I don't usually panic, even though I have a lot of stress in the type of, type of work I'm in. Yeah, that's something that if you have it, it's such an amazing gift. It's such an amazing ability to separate your anxiety or fear, any feeling that is associated with those feelings and your business that will probably help you live a longer life than most people, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Thanks. So I know that today, and we're kind of fast forwarding a few years after you sold a lot and, and you were able to become debt free. Can you tell me and, and the listeners, what do you what are you doing today? And before we started recording, you know, you also talked a little bit about using the profits from your business to fight human trafficking. I would love to hear about that as well. Yeah, you know, Ellie, three or so years ago, I hadn't really heard much about human trafficking. And then I saw a documentary called Nefarious. Mm. And I highly recommend it. It was put out by a group called Exodus cry exoduscry.com 
and nefarious details, the horrors of human trafficking. Did you know that if you took the record profits, and I don't mean the average, I mean the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, added those together, double that number, that's the approximate revenues being generated today by human trafficking. Unbelievable. And the impact on the tens of millions of children and other people that are affected is incredible, up to the tune of half a million dollars per person per year. Now think about what that means to that child or that, especially these little girls. And so I said to myself, you know, if I was alive in the 1850s, I'd want to believe that I was an abolitionist fighting against slavery. And if I would have been an adult in the 1960s, I want to believe I'd have been fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. This is slavery, and it's happening right under our noses. And there are, uh, from what I understand, more people enslaved today than at any point in history. And the stakes are really high, and it's just unacceptable that you know, if we're going to be breathing and if our heart's going to be beating on this earth during, you know, these years, 2018 and beyond that, you know, it's just not acceptable that we're not going to do something to impact the planet, not do something to change the world. And this, so this is my way of doing it. So I've decided to dedicate a significant portion of my profits and my time to fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims one way I'm doing that is talking about groups like Exodus Cry, which I already did. Another way is I'm also on the board of a group called Freedom Place Project, freedomplaceproject.com. We're putting together a billion-dollar office project in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we're going to be giving 100% of our syndicator profits to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. And so there's, there's nowhere for listeners to give. We're not collecting any money. We're doing this as a real estate deal. But if you want to learn more or be inspired, check out our website, freedomplaceproject.com. Amazing. Is there a reason why you feel very passionate about that? Besides, you know, obviously watching, was that a movie or a series? Yeah, it was, it was a movie. Besides watching this movie that you feel, you know, is there a reason why you feel that this is a cause that is close to your heart? Yeah. So I saw firsthand my wife, uh, without going into detail, was terribly mistreated, let's put it that way, as a teenager and somewhat trapped by a more powerful person who harmed her greatly. And I've watched the effects of over these 31 years of marriage of the difficulties she's had to deal with from being trapped in this situation. And one of my daughters was harmed as well. It's very near and dear to my heart. I, I can imagine with the very limited but horrific pain that each one of them had to go through, how much it's affecting somebody who has been literally enslaved uh, against their will for months or years. And so I, I wanna do something about it. Absolutely investing in real estate and, you know, using the profits to fight, you know, a phenomenon that is, it's such a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm, I'm amazed that we still have people that do that today with everything that is happening today with all, you know, you have people that are very protected in some countries or some homes, and then you have this harsh reality. I watched a TV show, I think it was called Human Trafficking, as simple as that. And 
I was shocked. I mean, I've always known about the subject. I read about it. I was aware of it. But then when you see it, and it wasn't even a real, obviously they had, you know, actors and actresses there. It hits you so hard. And I remember going with that. You feel like you, you've been punched in the stomach. So I cannot even imagine, you know, what those women and, and children, what they're going through and what your family members, you know, went through. And I feel your, your passion. And I think what you're doing is remarkable. It's, it's so unique and it's so great. And I encourage, you know, people to go to your website and I encourage my listeners to go there and check out what you're doing. If you can repeat the website again, that would be great. Yeah. It's freedom place project dot com mm -hmm. and so like i said i'm on the board of that organization and we're currently looking for a, like a, a co-ceo to help run the company so then we're going to be off to the races i'm hoping in the next you know year or two well best of luck i i really think this is a, a great vehicle for for people to invest in real estate and help a very very important cause thank you so much for sharing you know your story with us paul i really appreciate it and, you know, with all my guests, I, I asked them a couple of questions. And one of them is if you could look back and give your 20-year-old self a piece of advice, what would it be? You know, that's a great question. I was talking to my business partner that we sold the company from 20 years ago. He and I agreed that if we could go back and talk to our 20-something-year-old self, hopefully we would listen. And that would be, we, we would instruct ourselves not to chase shiny objects. You know, the people who have been the most successful, the Bill Gates, et cetera, of the world, they, they settled on something they wanted to do at a very young age, and they stayed with it through all the market ups and downs, all the technological changes, everything else, they stayed doggedly determined. And you know, like Gary Keller, who wrote The One Thing, says, mm -hmm. saying yes to one thing means saying no to a thousand or perhaps 10,000 other potential distractions. And that's the advice I would give my 20-year-old self. Great advice and great book, by the way. I've read it and I'm trying to implement that. It's, it's not easy when you're trying to do 10 things at once. I love the, the advice of having a success list and not a, a to-do list and focus on one thing. That's very important. Great. So, Paul, where can my listeners find you? They can find me at our website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Well, great, Paul. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your company does? Absolutely. So we started out as a multifamily syndicator. I actually wrote a book called The Perfect Investment, which is a book about multifamily investing and all the wonderful things that the risk and return that multifamily offers. I actually do believe it is the perfect investment. And I think it provides the perfect balance between risk and re return and all that. And I think the demographics of multifamily are solid for decades to come based on all the trends that we're seeing now. So my company, Wellings Capital, has been doing multifamily syndication. We have found it difficult to find deals that make sense for us because there's also a lot of other people who love multifamily right now, like you do, Ellie. Yeah. And so we've decided to expand our focus to add 
self-storage investing as well. And we're really enjoying the opportunities and the returns we're getting in self-storage right now as well. So we are pooling together a lot of accredited investors to acquire self-storage deals is what we're doing at this moment. Great, great. And are you investing in self-storage deals across the U.S., all over the U.S., or do you have specific markets that you focus on? You know, we're not actually focused on markets as much as Mm -hmm. we are focused on operators. And here's what I mean. This is a time, you know, here we are in the fall of 2018 when a lot of people think, you know, with interest rates rising and cap rates continuing to compress, there could be some problems on the horizon. And so if that's true, I decided I wanted to be investing with teams who have decades of experience, like I mentioned earlier, who've been through Mm -hmm. one or two or more recessions. So we're currently vetting companies who have, you know, one to two to four decades of experience in self-storage, mobile home, and uh, multifamily investing experience so that we can actually invest with them. So we're actually using uh, our platform to pool investors together, but we're investing with other operators right now. Got it. Got it. Great. And so we're more focused on the operator than the market is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. We, we want to trust them and then let them pick the markets, whether it's Wyoming or New York or California, whatever it is. That makes a lot of sense. So basically passive investors can invest with you knowing that you're actually vetting the operators and you're directing their money to where it's a solid investment, a safer investment. So if anything happens, when it happens, because we don't know when and, and how severe it will be, they can be sure that you're mitigating the risk by working with the right teams. Right. All right, great. Well, thank you again for you know being on the show today and sharing your amazing story. Also, you know, bringing this painful and very important topic of human trafficking to discussion. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ellie. It's been a real honor to be here, and I'm I'm so glad to be on your show. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.